0: So, um, c- can you hear me okay? All right. Well, uh, let's get started. Uh, my name is Dan Marlow. I'm the uh, chair of the physics department, and uh, it's my great honor uh, to welcome you to, uh, to Princeton if you're coming from off campus, uh, welcome you to McDonnell Hall if you're coming from on campus but not the physics department, and um, just for everyone, I'd, I'd like to welcome you all to the 31st. Annual uh, Donald Ross Hamilton Memorial Lecture um, and uh, i 'll introduce our speaker uh, in in a few minutes, um, but before doing that, the tradition is to uh, to say a little bit uh, about the uh, uh, the namesake, uh, Donald Ross Hamilton. Um, And uh, before I get to that, I should mention that these lectures are made possible uh, uh, through gifts of uh, friends and family of uh, Professor Hamilton, uh, in particular the class of 1935, the Princeton class of 1935, of which uh, Hamilton was a member. So uh, just a few uh, uh, biographical facts. Uh, Donald Hamilton was born in Vermont in 1914. Uh, as I mentioned, he was a member of the class of 1935 of Princeton. Um, he did his PhD under II uh, Robbie at Columbia. Robbie was one of the past uh, lecturers in this series uh, and is a, a, a famous, a quite famous person. Uh, Robbie uh, spoke in the 1979 lecture, just a historical note. Um, after uh, getting his PhD, uh, Hamilton was a, 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 in the Harvard uh, Society of Junior Fellows, um, and uh, that was just before the Second World War. During the Second World War, like many physicists of his generation, um, he was uh, taken into war work, uh, in particular uh, very important work at the um, uh, MIT Radiation Lab, uh, where Hamilton worked on microwave radar, uh, in general, and in particular, the development of the Klystron um, after uh, the war, uh, shortly after the war, uh, Donald Hamilton came here thousand nine hundred and forty six He was an assistant professor in this department. Um, he uh, quickly rose to tenure uh, within a few years one thousand nine hundred and forty eight he became a professor in this department um, and um, i 'll I'll mention his uh, his role as dean in a minute um, before I get to that though, I thought. Um, I, the, the Hamilton family was kind enough to send me some new uh, biographical information and I read with great interest that in 1953 um, H- Hamilton was involved in neutrino research and, and I won't uh, quite quote it but uh, basically in 1953 the uh, neutrinos uh, required uh, so much faith in the laws of physics that you simply wouldn't mention them in polite company uh, it was only a few years later uh... that they were first directly observed but, uh... if you believed in the laws of physics you had to believe in neutrinos so well ahead of his time hamilton did experiments uh... which must have been among the first generation to look for evidence of the neutrino mass which if you uh... read the science section of the times you know has only in very recent years been been established uh... hamilton's lecture uh... Um, limit was not um well, has long been superseded by much more sensitive experiments, but it was really a visionary experiment. Uh, for those of you who know the business, he set a limit of roughly 2,500 EV, if I, if I did the math correctly, um, which, as I said, has been superseded. Um, I think in terms of research, he's perhaps known better for his later work, uh, which is maybe also his earlier work on uh, spins and moments of radioactive nuclei. Um, Hamilton was the Dean of the Graduate School uh, he at the age of 43 became Dean of the Graduate School giving up the research and teaching he loved so much to serve the university in another way and in, in some of just looking through the files today I found an interesting statement it said he was the youngest educator to serve of Dean of the Graduate School at Princeton and I just wondered about why they had to put the word educator in there there were younger deans who were not educators evidently but uh, Okay, so, uh, just on, on a, on the personal, uh, side, he was married in 1938, uh, to uh, Eileen Platt, Pat, uh, Claire Patton, who's uh, here, the lovely lady with the, uh, corsage, who's been, uh, kind enough to join us this evening. And he had three children, uh, Erica, Eleanor, his two daughters, who are also both here, uh, and his son David. Um, and one other thing, um just, Sort of by coincidence, it came out actually in a conversation with Frank Caliprice, who remembers quite well that um, Hamilton would hold uh, seminars in his own home um, uh, well after uh, being afflicted with uh, multiple sclerosis. So he was really uh, a physicist through and through and a a member of the Princeton community through and through. And it's, it's a great tribute to him that this lecture series has been uh, donated by his uh, friends and family. So, uh, turning on to uh, the latest in a, in a great series of speakers, um, tonight's speaker, as you know from the advertisements, is Lawrence Krauss. Uh, Lawrence is the uh, Ambrose Swayze Professor of Physics uh, a Professor of Astronomy and Chair of the Physics Department at uh, Case Western in Cleveland, Ohio, he has many vocations and advocations. Let me just uh, list them quickly and then i 'll loop back in a little bit more detail. Um, he 's by training and by trade, a theoretical physicist in the areas of elementary particles and cosmology, which will uh, be uh, at least part of his talk tonight he 's a teacher you'll you'll hear that too. Um he's an administrator and a program builder, uh an author of popular science books, an advocate of science based which or rational um, public policy and uh, once again you'll you'll get to sample his talents as a uh, public speaker tonight. Um so Just in in terms of teaching, um, this is not just at the university level. He is a professor and, of course, teaches at the university level, but also has interests in K through 12 and in the even uh, more difficult group of uh, policymakers. All right. So... He's an administrator and a leader, as I mentioned, uh, widely celebrated for his work in in building or rebuilding the physics department at Case Western. Um, And I know uh, he has impeccable taste uh, because he hired uh, at least two Princeton students to to, uh, staff his effort there. And I I know for a fact those are first-rate people. Um, And uh, he's involved in many other aspects of the Case Western uh, program. In terms of uh, his authorship, he is... Uh, an author of five major books, and, and these are books that people actually read, actually pay money for and read. Um, and, uh, in fact, it's, it's some of them, one of them, at least one of them, is The Physics of Star Trek, which has uh, sold uh, over 200,000 copies and is a bestseller. So uh, very uh, is a great contribution there. Uh, as I mentioned, he's a policy advocate. He's a frequent op-ed contributor to uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer in his, in his uh, now hometown, and also the New York Times. And uh, this uh, quite literally uh, carries to this day, because today there was an article, uh, he had an article in the science section of the Times, um, entitled The Citizen Scientist's Obligation to Stand Up for Standards. So uh, uh, public speaking, I'll just mention that he's garnered honors um, too numerous to mention, and and usually when he gets an honor, presumably they make you talk. It's probably just a way to get you... (laughs) Um, but anyway, I won't uh, belabor that because the proof is in the pudding. So, without further ado, let me introduce uh, Professor Lawrence Krauss.
1: Thanks, Dan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think there is time for the talk. Uh, the um, the uh, I am inexplicably honored to be here tonight, and not to only to honor a great physicist, but to be here at Princeton, uh, where I have many friends and as well as many physicists whom I've held in awe and most of my period from the time I first visited here, actually, as a prospective graduate student um, who was rejected uh, to, uh, <laughs> since that time. And uh, so it is, it is a great pleasure to be back here uh, tonight. Um, uh and <laughs> No, don no. uh, I, I want what i 'm going to talk about tonight is a, is a mystery story. actually, the reason I put this up here is um, it 's a, a quote from i 'll quote various philosophers tonight um, and, uh, and I want to talk about the the consolation of philosophy in some sense of boethius uh, the, but the reason I, I, I put this up here primarily so you would have something to read while I was being introduced but uh, the um, but it actually, while it has absolutely nothing to do with the lecture, in a sense it does, because I'm going to talk about cosmology, and I have been, in these times, I think it's nice to realize that one of the wonderful things about science is that it, it elevates us above the human tragedy and the, and the petty myopia of our existence. And, and so when we think of the things I'm going to talk about today, and I start, my intention tonight is to make you dizzy. Uh, so I hope by the end of this you'll be dizzy. And I hope by the end of this you'll think of the universe in a slightly different way. But so the, the, when we look at, as you'll see, an exploding star, it allows us to forget the, the short-sightedness of many people, including recent or long-ago Princeton graduates. Um, and... Uh, uh, or at the same time, it allows us to realize that we're part of a, a, a long tradition. And, and in fact, one of my sadnesses is that I'm, this is David Wilkinson, uh, 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 oh, uh, the late David Wilkinson, who was a, a, a remarkable physicist here, chair of the department. And, and for me, one of my great sadnesses is that, is that I'm here and, and that he isn't. And so I, I'm, I'm sort of dedicating this to him in a sense. Um, in any case, that's, a, that's as serious as I'm going to get. Uh, the, the the talk, as I say, is is a really a mystery story, and it's it's a, it's the best kind of mystery story because we don't know who did it, okay? Right in the middle, and and maybe some of you in the audience will, will some of these students will will carry us on to try and figure out this where things are going because we are we find ourselves in the middle of the most remarkable puzzle in in all of physics, if not in all of science. And um, so this is. Um, for those of us who live in Cleveland, we don't get to see this very often. But this is the night sky, and uh, and as I say, I hope I want to change the way you think about the night sky, uh, because when you look at it on a beautiful night like this, if you go out in the woods and and see it, it looks remarkable. But and and the stars seem, and they're endless. And but they are the point about what we've discovered is that everything you can see, the stars, and in some cases planets and everything that shines is really just the tip of a vast cosmic iceberg. And the really important stuff, the stuff that makes the universe what it is, is the stuff between the stars. And in some sense, we, we, we know it's the most important stuff in nature, but we have no idea what it is. And that's the story that I want to talk to you about tonight. Um, okay, so it's a mystery story. By the way, this is a Microsoft free lecture. Uh, I'm pleased to say, as you'll see. Um, In any case, so we go back to 1916 or so. It was a dark and stormy night, and Einstein had just developed the general theory of relativity. And it's a beautiful theory. In fact, it was the first theory that described not just the motion of objects within space, but the the motion of space itself. And as such, it was capable of describing the entire physical universe. But there was a problem. And uh, uh, it it was a huge problem. Einstein had just developed this theory, and it was beautiful, and he knew it was, in a sense, correct. But it didn't describe the universe as as it existed in 1916. uh, The universe then was static. When you look out, nothing is moving out there. And it was largely at rest, or so people thought. And there was a big problem with gravity. And it was true not just with Newton's gravity, but in fact with general relativity. The same thing. All all first-year physics students know that gravity sucks. It always pulls. It never pushes. And you cannot... (laughs) And you can never, therefore, have a static solution of in Newton's gravity or in general relativity with matter. Because you put points of matter down, and they don't just sit there. They collapse. And here you have this beautiful universe that seemed to be just sitting there. So that was the problem, and Einstein tried to think of a way to solve it. Now, I, um, I can't give a talk about Einstein in this context without presenting Einstein's equations. and I, I know it's a public lecture, and I apologize. Um, I... I did want to make them user-friendly, so I, uh, for the, for for the, for, for the, well, actually, this is for the biologists in the audience, but, um, the, uh, uh the, the, um, it's not completely facetious, uh, because Einstein, in Einstein's equations, in fact, the left-hand side equals the right-hand side, absolutely true, but the left-hand side represents, in a general sense, those things that relate to the curvature of space. Einstein just, dis- Realized that, in fact, space would curve in the presence of matter and respond dynamically to the presence of matter and energy. And so the stuff on the left-hand side is related to curvature of space. The stuff on the right-hand side is related to the energy of momentum of the stuff within space that causes that curvature. And that was a profound relationship, and, and of course, it, one can write it with the Greek letters and, and such. It's not particularly illuminating. But... Um, this was the theory that appeared to predict a universe that was vastly different than we lived in. A universe where all matter should collapse together instead of remaining static. Now, Einstein was nothing if not creative. And he recognized that consistent with all the symmetries that had led him to develop this beautiful theory, one could, one could add an extra term to the equations. And um, this extra term here would produce a... Cosmic repulsive force throughout all of space a small Cosmic repulsive force an extra force. It could be very very weak, so you wouldn't notice it on earth at all But on the scale of the universe it could build up and basically hold distant stars and galaxies apart Against the gravitational attraction that would otherwise bring them together And so this in principle would allow the equations of general relativity to describe the universe that Einstein thought He lived in in uh, in 1916 and he called that the cosmological term and um the problem is that shortly having after having written it down he realized it, it was potentially a mistake it wasn't necessary okay and in fact it wasn't necessary because shortly after it was written down people began to realize the universe is in fact not static it's expanding and uh, in fact, when I was on on leave a few years ago in Switzerland, I I, I got this uh, postcard, which was from Einstein to Vile, very famous mathematical physicist, um, for, and it was from 1923 actually. And many of your German being, you know, the Princeton students especially, I'm sure, can read German. Um, uh, said if. if um, If you get rid of a quasi-static universe, then out goes a cosmological constant, essentially. A cosmological field, he called it. He realized that if the universe wasn't static, if it was in fact expanding, and this is as early as 1923, then you didn't need a cosmological constant. Why is that? Because in a universe that's expanding, of course, gravity can be universally attractive. You can start out with a Big Bang. Matter can fly apart, and gravity can be universally attractive, and it can serve to slow down the expansion. And the big question then becomes, is there enough gravity to stop the expansion and cause it to reverse into a a big crunch, the opposite of a big bang? And that became essentially the mission of cosmology over the 20th century to determine whether there was enough gravity in the universe to stop the the observed expansion. And uh, so Einstein realized in that case you don't need a cosmic repulsive force, and he he said, in fact, that it was his biggest blunder. But uh, there's a problem with that. But before I go on with that... I want to just briefly describe how we know the universe is expanding, because it will come back in a second. And, and in fact, while while there were inklings of the universe expanding as early in the the early 1920s, the person who convinced the world of that was, in fact, someone else. And, which I hope this will work at. I pressed this, but let me try it again. Is it doing anything? There we go. Um, uh, This, actually, this guy gives me great hope for humanity. Has always done this. This is Edwin Hubble. And the reason he gives you great hope for humanity is that he started life as a lawyer. And, and, and he became an astronomer. And so there is hope. Um, and he was the one who, in a sense, who convinced the world that the, that the universe was expanding. And he did it by a series of, of, of observations and discovered, in fact, that, that as we look out at the, uh, at the distant universe, we're here at the edge of the Milky Way galaxy, as we look out at other galaxies, on average, they are moving away from us. And moreover what is quite surprising is that those that are twice as far away from us are moving away from us twice as fast. A remarkable and three times as far away three times as fast. A remarkable observation and when you when you see this and by the way this is codified in the mathematical expression that the velocity is proportional to distance and the constant of proportionality we call the Hubble constant in honor Mr Hubble and has again some units that are not particularly important for this lecture. But when you see that, of course, you know what that means. It means we're the center of the universe. Okay? And that's the natural interpretation. Of course, that is not the interpretation. What it tells us is that the universe is uniformly expanding. It's really hard to see that from this picture because we're we're sitting in the middle of it, or what we think is in the middle of it. So I want to just, in order to realize that it means the universe is expanding, you have to look outside the box, literally. So I want to remove us for a moment and take us outside the box. So we are standing outside of the universe now, watching it expand. And I, and I want to show you why the, the, the signature that Hubble got, in fact, tells us that the universe is expanding, not that we're the center. So if the universe is expanding, and I plunk down galaxies at regular intervals at some time, T1, and the later time I plunked it down and the distance between them is increasing, I can ask, say, so what would it look like if I were standing on one of the galaxies? So let me pick a galaxy, say so that one right there. What I want to do is I want to place that galaxy... Right there, on top of where it was earlier, and see what happens. Okay, and what you see is if you're at that galaxy, you look at everything else, and all the galaxies are moving away from you. And moreover, those that are twice as far away have moved twice as as fast. They've actually moved more farther away from you in the distance than this one has. Okay, and it doesn't matter where you are. So I can do the same thing. I can pick another galaxy and plunk it down, and it's the center of the universe. In fact, any place you pick, as long as there's no edge. In this case, I picked the edge of my picture. Everything is moving away from you, and, and things that are twice as far away from you are moving twice as fast. So the, what, what Hubble's discovery told us is not that we're the center of the universe, but rather that every place is the center of the universe, that there is no center, that the universe is uniformly expanding, and that wherever you are on, everything is moving away from you. And he discovered it by, um, by using the laws of physics, of course, and using one of the a famous law of physics the undergraduates learn, having to with what's called the Doppler effect. Actually, one of my favorite transparencies I meant to bring it was of, of these two cowboys on a plane looking down at the train at night, and one says, "I love to listen to the w- lonesome wail of the train whistle as the as the frequency of the wave changes due to the Doppler effect." And, um, and, but the point is, it's a very famous fact that when when when. Um, Something is coming towards you, a train or an ambulance, okay? As it comes towards you, the sound, the the frequency is higher, the sound, the, 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 uh, sound signs, the sound, the notes sound higher because the waves get scrunched up, okay? And the wavelength gets scrunched up, the frequency increases. And as the train whistle is going away from you, it sounds lower because the waves get stretched out. That's called the Doppler effect. And a similar effect occurs with light. For slightly different reasons, but basically the effect is the same, and so we can actually look and see how things are moving in the universe by measuring the Doppler effect. So we look at, at stars. Oops, actually, let me go back in. We look at, at, I forgot I should use this thing. We look at stars, and we look at the light from stars, and the first thing we discover is that when we measure the frequency of light from stars, we see the same frequencies of light that are emitted by hydrogen gas in the laboratory. That is a remarkable statement. For many reasons. First, it means that stars are made of hydrogen, to a large part, which is nice. We now know that the stars are made of the same stuff. They're hydrogen, the same stuff we find here. But more importantly for me, at least in another context, and and I I don't think this is as widely appreciated as it should be, and that is that it means that the laws of physics are the same everywhere. I I, I have to, with my other hat, with my Star Trek hat, I meet many people who have been abducted by aliens, and they... They tell me that, that the reason that aliens have come here, even though it doesn't seem possible they could do that, is the laws of physics are different where they live. And, um, and they're not. This is remarkable because one of the great triumphs of 20th century physics was in fact explaining the spectrum of hydrogen, required knowing all about electromagnetism and quantum mechanics, as you'll see. And so that explanation was, was a profound triumph. But the fact that we see exactly the same frequencies of light emitted in the stars means that the laws of physics of electromagnetism and quantum mechanics and relativity are precisely the same there. And we can measure it not just for the stars in our galaxy, but for stars throughout the universe. The laws of physics are the same everywhere. And that's a very important fact and not too often appreciated. But again, it has nothing to do with the lecture. So, But I thought I'd mention it. So anyway, uh, when we look at stars, we measure the frequencies of light to be the same if they're not moving with respect to us. But if they're moving away from us, the waves get stretched out. The red light is the, is the long wavelength end of the spectrum. And we see the, them being redder than they would look otherwise. If they're moving towards us, we see them looking bluer. And and so you can tell how fast objects are moving away from you just by looking at this Doppler effect. So that's the easy part. Remember, the Hubble law tells us velocity is proportional to distance. So we can measure how fast stars are moving away from us, but how can you measure how far apart, away they are? And that's the hard part. That's the part that's taken over 7 years to be able to get right when 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 Hubble first measured this fact he, this is his first data in 1929 this is uh this is um uh velocity let's see this is uh velocity and this is distance and this is why he was such a great scientist by the way he knew to draw a straight line through this data set okay and he um and when he did he got an answer it was a factor 10 wrong but this is cosmology and um uh you recognize the universe is expanding. The reason you got a factor of 10 wrong is it's really hard to measure distance. How do you measure distance? You, you know, we don't have tape measures that are long enough. If you, um, if you want to try and measure distances to the nearest stars, you can use, you can use what um, surveyors used to use when I was a kid. You can measure, look at the back of the room, and you can take a sighting here, and, and, and you can take a sighting here. And you can measure those angles and and this distance, and then if you go to a European high school student, you can ask them to calculate (laughs) how how far away the back of the room is. Um, And then, uh, okay, but that only works for the nearest stars, okay? For farther stars, if you want to measure the distance, you you have to think of other ways, and, and, and we look for things called standard candles. I could tell the distance to the back of the room by... If I had an old-fashioned light meter, as cameras used to have when I was growing up, and I, and I knew there was a 100-watt light bulb in the back of the room, I could look at how much light is on my meter and know that light spreads out uniformly in all directions, calculate the, from the power on my meter how far away the light bulb is. Okay. Unfortunately, the universe isn't populated with 100-watt light bulbs, so we have to look for the equivalent, standard candles. And in fact, uh, that is the reason the Hubble Space Telescope is called the Hubble Space Telescope. Because... One of the wonderful kinds of standard candles is something called a Cepheid variable star. It's a star that gets brighter and dimmer over a regular period of days uh, or longer. And what you can do is look at nearby Cepheid variable stars and use this uh, measurement using part of, of, uh, of, um, with, mm, what's the word I'm thinking about, of angles and, and, um, well, not triangulation, but that's good enough. Anyway, parallax, parallax, thank you. to, uh, to measure their distance and you can determine a remarkable empirical fact that the period of Cepheid variable stars is proportional to their brightness in a, in a very well-defined way. So then you can look at Cepheid variable stars that are very far away and you can, uh, you can draw and therefore determine how, how far away they are because you measure what their period is, you know their intrinsic brightness, then you see how bright they appear in your telescope and you know how far away they are. And so the reason the Hubble Space Telescope was called the Hubble Space Telescope is because it was the first telescope that could look at distant galaxies, galaxies outside our own like this one, and try and see individual Cepheid variable stars. So, I have a, uh, a Hubble Space Telescope picture, and I don't know if you can see this, but there are several uh, boxes, and these boxes actually contain individual, well, contain many stars, but in them are Cepheid variable stars, which the Hubble Space Telescope would individually resolve their brightness variations, and therefore determine the distance to those galaxies. And once you know the distance to the galaxies, and you know how far away they're moving, you can measure the Hubble constant. So that's why it was called the Hubble Space Telescope, to measure the Hubble constant. The Recession velocity of these objects. Now we go back to the image I showed at the very beginning. That only works for nearby galaxies, galaxies that are millions of light years away, merely. Uh, the nearest large galaxy to our own Andromeda is about two million light years away. So the average galaxy is about a million light years apart. And uh, but if we want to measure distances and velocities across the length of the un- visible universe, we have to look for objects that you can see across the universe. And a new type of standard candle has arisen in the last decade, and it's shown here. You can see this galaxy, a spiral galaxy, much like our own again, and this incredibly bright object, which is as bright as the center of the galaxy, and this object is an exploding star, a supernova. Exploding stars are among the brightest fireworks in the universe. When a star explodes, it shines with the brightness of several billion stars for a period of days or weeks or almost months. And... Uh, the remarkable thing, and to, it's remarkable to me at least, is that these have become standard candles that we can use to measure the universe on its largest scales. And uh, due to a, a, an interesting fact, um, when we look at supernovae, now you might say, how can you find an exploding star? How often do they occur? And it's another remarkable fact about the universe is that it's very old and very big. And that means rare things happen all the time. And that is exploited more and more in science and will continue to be. It turns out that stars explode about once every 100 years per galaxy. Okay? So you'd think it would be very daunting to find exploding stars. I mean, 100 years is about the average time of a graduate student, so you could (laughs) assign each each graduate student to a different galaxy. That's one way of doing it. But the amazing thing is, of course, that means if you were on a single night to look at, say, 10,000 galaxies and a star explodes once every 100 years per galaxy, then on average, you're guaranteed to see at least one exploding star. Okay? If you look at 100,000 galaxies on a given night in a single image, you're guaranteed, to see, you're guaranteed to see 10 or more stars that explode. And so people actually make telescope proposals to look, to say, tonight I'm going to discover 10 exploding stars. And they do. Okay? It is really amazing to me. And here is an example of one exploding star seen. Uh, in a, in a, this is the galaxy three weeks before the observation. This is the day of the observation. And if you track these two images, you see this brightness here. And um, in fact, here's another way of seeing it. Um, this is a movie from uh, one of the groups that looks for exploding stars, uh, many on a given night. And here is, if you look here in the visual image, you can see this particular star get bright and dim as it explodes. It'll repeat. And you can see that that you actually measure the brightness variation here, and you can measure the spectrum and and know what kind of supernova it is. This is what's called the type 1a supernova, a very particular type of supernova, and this spectrum allows you to identify it. But the important thing is, what was empirically discovered is an amazing fact. And that is that if you look at these exploding stars, and I should tell you that we really don't know exactly what the thing is that's exploding. People have ideas. For what the precursor of a Type 1A supernova is, but no one has a theory that predicts or uh, well, no one has a theory that has convinced the community that predicts uh, the, the shape of this light curve and the spectrum as it is. But phenomenologically, which means just by looking at the data, it has been discovered that if you look at the brighter ones and again, the brighter ones you could tell, because there are nearby galaxies, and you can measure the distance to those nearby galaxies by independent means the brighter ones last longer. And the dimmer ones don't last as long. This is brightness as a function of days. So this is 20. This is the peak brightness. This is 20 days later, 40 days later, and 60 days later. And it, it is an amazing fact that if you scale all these curves by a single number, namely the width of this brightness curve, if you scale them by that same that that number, all of them line exactly the same curve. It is amazing, and that tells us if we could just measure a supernova, see how long it's bright. We know what its intrinsic brightness is. And once you know its intrinsic brightness, then you know how far away it is when you see how bright it seems through a telescope. So these objects have become standard candles and it allow, have allowed us to, this is the, a modern Hubble plot. Of course, it's a log log plot, so it doesn't, the fact that it's a straight line is not too impressive. But, but um, it is uh, nevertheless, allows us to measure the, uh, the Hubble cost of today, this and other techniques, with an accuracy of 10%. So we know the universe is expanding and we know the rate of expansion. It's a factor of 10 less than Hubble told us and um, and we have an accuracy of 10%. It's taken a long time. It's taken most of the 20th century to get that far. This this data, it wasn't was until the mid-1990s that, or almost the end of the 1990s that number was known to 10% or so. Now, let's go back to 1916. Einstein now knows the... Uh, the universe is expanding, and he wants to get rid of his, hub of his uh, cosmological constant. But just like trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube, after it's out, it's impossible. Okay? And it's impossible because, in fact, if Einstein hadn't written it down, someone else would have. Because there's another way of thinking about this object. So, I, in fact, I can do a complex mathematical transformation to this equation, which I will do. Okay? <laughs> This, um, this is a, 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 a small step for a mathematician, but a giant leap for a physicist, okay? And I mean that in the sense that I've taken that term and put it over here, okay? But mathematically, it's trivial, but you now see when it's on this side of the equation, it is a completely different meaning. Here, it represented an object that was related to somehow curvature of the universe. Here, it is now related to the energy and momentum of the universe. And it represents a new type of energy, momentum. And what is it the energy of? It turns out you can show from the symmetries of this theory that there's one and only one thing that has this type of energy, and that's nothing. By nothing, I mean nothing. If you take empty space and give it energy, general relativity tells you it must have this form by Lorentz invariance, it turns out. So this tells you if you have a cosmological constant, then nothing has energy. Now, this is ridiculous. Okay. I mean, if you go and ask a, a four-year-old, if you go and ask George Bush, uh, what, 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 if you say, what's the energy of empty space? Okay, when well, they look at you, then you go and ask a four-year-old. You say, "What's the energy of empty space?" And they say, "Nothing. There's nothing there," and uh, and that's the that's the sensible answer because there's nothing there. The trouble is that what 20th century physics has also told us is that nothing ain't nothing. Okay? In fact, nothing is a boiling, bubbling brew of virtual elementary particles that are spontaneously appearing and disappearing before your very... Well, in fact, not before your very eyes. They're appearing and going into existence and living for a little while so short that you can't even measure them directly. In fact, when you take quantum mechanics and you merge it with special relativity, the two tell you... Unambiguously, that these particles, these virtual particles, must exist that can spontaneously appear and, and disappear as long as the time is so short you cannot measure them. Now, that sounds like angels on the head of a pin. It sounds like philosophy. Okay? But it's physics because you cannot measure them directly, but you can measure them indirectly. I told you that one of the greatest triumphs of 20th century physics was... To measure the spectrum of hydrogen and then be able to predict it using the laws of quantum mechanics. So we understand the the light emitted by hydrogen occurs when electrons jump from one energy level to another in a hydrogen atom. And when you do the calculation using the laws of quantum mechanics, you get the number wrong. The number doesn't agree with observation. Not by very much, but it's wrong by a few parts in a billion or so. But, if you accept for the fact that that, that, that that's not the, really the correct picture of a hydrogen atom. A hydrogen atom isn't just sitting there alone, because periodically, a particle-antiparticle pair, an electron and its antiparticle called a positron, will spontaneously appear from empty space, hang around for a little while, and then disappear. And while they're hanging around, The electron being negatively charged will want to hang around near the proton and the positron being positively charged will hang around up there and that will change the electronic configuration of the atom. And what's remarkable is it will change it in a measurable way and in a way that you can calculate. And we do the calculation. The calculation produces the best measured prediction in all of physics. Okay? Calculated by, among other people, a former Princeton graduate student here. Um, the, uh, it, if we take the predicted energy difference between these things and compare it to the observed and divided by the prediction, the agreement is now better than a, than a few parts in a billion. So literally, there is no other area of physics where predictions are this good, or, and I would venture no other area of science where you could predict something with this accuracy. So we know that even though we can't measure them directly, virtual particles are there. And they have other effects. In fact, um, uh if, if, there turns out to be another effect, first recognized by a Dutch physicist, that, that if you take a, a set of parallel plates, metallic plates, put them together, it turns out the virtual particles that can appear outside the plates are different than the ones that can appear inside the plates, and that produces a net force, which will actually, it's a very small force, but it'll push the plates together, and you actually can do experiments, and here's a here's a Casimir effect experiment with two carefully prepared metal plates, and you can measure that force that the virtual particles in empty space basically produce. And it's exactly that we predict from quantum electrodynamics. So we know virtual particles exist. We know the vacuum is not empty. It's full. So the next question, of course, is, well, if there's lots of stuff in empty space, maybe it has energy. And you can say, well, how much energy is there? And you can do a calculation. You can estimate the total energy of empty space. And if you do, the result you come up with is the following. That the energy of empty space should be roughly a gazillion times the energy of all matter in the universe. This is, without a doubt, the worst prediction in all of physics, which is why we never talked about it. Okay? We know, for reasons I'll tell you in a moment, that the energy of the space could not be a lot greater than the energy of all matter in the universe. If it was, we wouldn't be here. And so this created what has been called become known as the cosmological constant problem. It's been around since I've been a graduate student, and as I say, it was an embarrassment to everyone. But we knew what the solution was. Theorists knew what the solution was. Um, the solution is quite simple. Somehow a miracle occurs. And and, and all, of the, all of this energy gets canceled, and the energy of empty space is exactly zero. Because zero is the only sensible value for the energy of empty space, after all. We knew that also because we couldn't imagine a mechanism that would somehow cancel all these decimal places. Let's say the energy of empty space isn't zero, but it's comparable to the energy of all matter in the universe. That means, somehow, something has to cancel this number to 120 decimal places and leave something finite left over. That just doesn't happen. You can imagine making something zero. You can imagine a new symmetry of nature, for example, that might forbid such a term in the equations describing nature. That's understandable. But canceling something to 120 decimal places isn't. So we knew the answer was zero. We didn't know why, but we could sleep at night. Okay? Now, there's another reason why we knew it had to be zero. And that was if it wasn't zero, then it's ridiculous because we live in a very special time. This is probably the most complicated curve I'll show, so, so it's downhill from here. Don't worry. Um, the, as the universe is expanding, the density of matter in the universe... Gets smaller It goes down as one over the volume of the universe So this this shows the density of the universe As a function of time If it's expanding The density of matter in the universe But what about the density Energy density of empty space How does that change as the universe expands Well the answer is it doesn't It remains constant The, The reason is quite simple There's nothing there So it can't get diluted Okay, I mean, that's the best reason I know. It's, the equations tell you it can't, but in fact, it doesn't. It remains constant. That's why the cosmological constant is a constant. So if there were energy of empty space in the form of a cosmological constant, it would be constant. Then you would say, if the energy of empty space and the energy of matter were comparable today, this would be the only time in the history of the universe when they're comparable. Because for all earlier times, the density of matter would be far greater than the density of empty space, the energy density of empty space. For later times, the energy density of empty space would be much larger than the energy density of matter. And our time, at some random time, 13 billion years into the history of the universe, would be the only time when they were comparable. And and there's no reason to expect that we live at a special time. There's nothing about the universe that tells us that we live at a special time. My friends in Ohio who believe in intelligent design notwithstanding. So, as a result... The idea was, if if there isn't going to be a cosmic coincidence of vast proportion, we should assume there is no energy of empty space, okay? Or at least it's nowhere near the, the amount of matter, okay? So we knew, as I say, theorists knew that the energy of empty space was zero. But the important thing about physics is that it's an empirical science. And you can't believe theorists all the time, and you've got to go out and measure things. And so if you really want to know if the energy of empty space is zero, you should measure it. And the first person to propose such a measurement was George Orwell who said, to see what is in front of one's nose requires a constant struggle. Now, what did he mean by this? Well, he meant, remember, remember what the cosmological constant does. It produces this small repulsive force throughout nature. Okay? And it means, in fact, that, that objects will be moving away from us due to this repulsive force, and it turns out that their velocity will be proportional to the distance away from us, because they're constantly being pushed by this force. Now you can ask, say, okay, if it was bigger than a certain, well, okay, so things are moving faster as they get away from us. At a certain point, they will actually be, be moving away from us faster than the speed of light. And that that is allowed. Okay, you learn in high school that nothing can move faster than the speed of light, but that's a lie. Okay, you have to be like a lawyer. You have to parse a little more carefully. You have to say, nothing can move through space faster than the speed of light, but space can do whatever the heck it wants. Okay? According to general relativity, at least as far as we know. And space can carry things away from you as it expands faster than the speed of light. So if something's moving away from you faster than the speed of light, you cannot see it. Light doesn't get to you. So now, let's say you're Bill Clinton and your nose is 10 centimeters long. Okay? Just to show I'm not politically biased. Um, uh, The... uh, so let's say, how small would the cosmological constant have to be so that you could see the light from your end of your nose if it was 10 centimeters away? So, the, the, so that the space 10 centimeters away from your nose was not moving away from you faster than the speed of light. Turns out the answer is that in order to see the end of your nose, the cosmological constant would have to be 60 orders of magnitude smaller than that number that we calculated. So already you know that number can't be right. But it also tells you, unfortunately, that in the laboratory, you're never going to be able to try and probe the cosmological constant as well as you could do in the universe. Because in the laboratory, you can only see to the end of the laboratory. But the universe, you can look to the other end of the universe. And the very fact that we can see galaxies billions of light years away tells us that the cosmological constant can't be much larger in energy than the energy of all matter in the universe. That's where we get that bound. But it also tells you if you want to probe to see if it's not zero, you can't do it in the laboratory. You're stuck with the universe. And astrophysics is the only way to try and probe this quantity at this point. So we try and probe the universe. How do we do that? We stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, Does anyone know who this is? Uh, This this is, uh, if you look very carefully, he's missing the end of his nose. Um, This is Tycho Brahe, who was a great astronomer in Denmark. Um, and this is uh, the Isle of Ven, which was actually given to him by the King of Denmark when he discovered an exploding star. And um, it's now a, an island off Sweden uh, because of politics. But uh, he was a, uh, a feudal lord. And But during that time, during his lifetime, he, he, he it w- it was a noble profession. He lied on his back for 20 years. Okay? He looked at the stars without a telescope. This was before the telescope was invented. And he observed similar, simply the position of the planets in the sky each night. That's it. Recorded them very carefully, and that's, that was his major contribution. But it was so amazing, because what he did was measure the position of the planets in the sky with an accuracy of almost ten times better than anyone had done before. And that is an amazing thing. You think of the Babylonian astronomers and and all of the people who looked at the night sky over the ages without a telescope. And single-handedly, he improved the precision by almost an order of magnitude. That's why we remember him today. Then he took that data and he gave it to his his, uh, poor assistant, Johannes Kepler, after he was kicked off this island. Um, And he gave Kepler the task of, of interpreting the data without a Macintosh or anything. And Kepler spent the better part of his life looking at the data and, and as far as we can tell, fudging it, and he discovered what we now call known as Kepler's laws. In particular, what he discovered was an amazing fact about the motion of the planets around the sun. And that is that if you look at the velocity of planets around the sun, it falls off in a very specific way. In fact, it falls off so that the the square of the velocity of planets around the sun falls off as one over the distance from the sun. And this is the, and it's remarkable. This is the data. I got this from the only place you can get this kind of stuff from a first-year astronomy textbook. And, um, and, then, and then this is a, a curve that goes like one over r. Okay? Or one over the square root of r, I should say, because I plot velocity here. And it fits precisely. I mean, it's, it's better than it has any right to fit. Okay? And I would have fudged the data if I had to, but I didn't. Okay, now what made... Newton, famous, was he predicted that, or post-dicted that, I should say, I guess, in this case. He said, okay, if I imagine there's a law of gravity, and there's a certain force that has a certain relationship, that planets attract each other, and the force goes as one over the square of the distance between the objects, I can predict that the velocity, the square of the velocity of planets around the sun will fall off as one over their distance. And the constant of proportionality will be the strength of gravity times the mass of the sun. At the time he, he wrote this down, no one knew the strength of gravity because gravity is the weakest force in nature by far, okay? Um, and it took 100 years before anyone could measure the strength of gravity. And the interesting thing about that paper by this guy Cavendish, if you re-look at the paper, it's not entitled On Measuring the Strength of Gravity or anything like that. Even then, he knew that if you wanted your colleagues to read your work, you had to come up with a sexy title, okay? And it's called Weighing the Earth because he knew that, you see, until that point... He was talking about the moon around the earth, which is the same thing holds for the moon around the earth. If you don't know the strength of gravity, if you can measure this and this, but you don't know this, you can't determine that. But the minute you can measure the strength of gravity, you can determine that. And you can use Newton's laws to weigh the sun or the earth. Here's the sun. You can weigh it. And in fact, here's the way you weigh it. You, you have the, the velocities and you have the prediction of Newton, this line. And if you have to push it up to, to match the data, then the sun is heavier. If you have to push it down, the sun is lighter. So by trying to fit this curve to this data, you can determine the mass of the Sun. And actually, the data is sufficiently good that by this technique, you can, in principle, measure the mass of the Sun to better than one part in a billion. It's really good. It's it's better than it has any right to be. We we actually don't know the mass of the Sun to one part in a billion. And the the reason is, I was going to ask if anyone knew why, but I know some people here do, so I won't ask. it's because gravity is the, w- w- the weakest measured force in, in nature. And we we'd only know the strength of gravity to about one part in 100,000 or so. And therefore, we only know the mass of the sun to one part in 100,000. But that's not bad. So we, it, we, it still works so successfully that we do what physicists do, which is if it works, copy it. It's just like Hollywood. Okay? Whenever something works very well in one place in physics, you keep applying it and applying it and applying it until it stops working. And in this case, if you want to measure the mass of the sun, that's fine, but let's measure the mass of the galaxy. We, after all, live at the edge of our galaxy. This is a spiral galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, the nearest large galaxy to our own. And if this were our galaxy, we'd be living in a a boring suburb. I don't mean Princeton. I mean right where the, 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 the sun is, right around here. And it's moving around our galaxy with a velocity that takes it around about once every 200 million years. And since it's at the edge of all the luminous stuff in our galaxy, we can determine from its orbital velocity and its distance from the center of the galaxy, the mass of the galaxy. We can do what people did for the sun. So we'll do it. By the way, that was the Andromeda galaxy, not our own. And by the way, how do we know that's not our own galaxy? Okay, I just, at this point, I want to see if you're awake. Okay, we live in our galaxy. Okay, um, we're looking at this from the outside. But actually, we can actually see our own galaxy. And in fact, we can't see it with light, with visible light, because most of it's obscured by dust. But in microwaves and infrared and light and with the Kobe satellite, which I'll talk about soon, where we can pierce the dust, in fact, we can see this is what our galaxy looks like from where we are. We're right on the edge of the Milky Way galaxy. And when we look in towards the center, we see that spiral that everyone told us was there. It's an amazing picture available only a little over a decade ago. Anyway, we can measure the mass of the sun this way. We can plot the velocity of the sun and its distance from the center of the galaxy. And from that single point, and Newton's laws, we can determine the total mass that's pulling the sun in. We do that, we determine the total mass inside our region of the the galaxy is 10 to the 11th, 100 billion solar masses. When we measure that, we, we jump up and down with excitement because if you count the number of stars in our galaxy, there are roughly 100 billion. So everything holds together. But of course, you don't want to be satisfied with this. You want to do for our galaxy what we did for the sun. We must measure objects that are further and further out and get a better estimate of the mass of our sun for fitting all the data. So we look for objects further out, <laughs> and even the untrained eye could tell that the data doesn't fit the curve, <laughs> the prediction. The data, in fact, instead of falling off, The velocity of all these objects, globular clusters and and, and satellite galaxies out to 10 times the distance from the center of our galaxy as our sun. I remind you, all the bright stuff is in here. But these velocities, instead of falling off, as we would have expected, remain constant. There's one and only one way that that could be if this data is accurate. And if gravity holds true. And that is, if there's more mass out there than meets the eye. In fact... You can show that if the mass of our galaxy continues to increase linearly with distance, then you'll produce this kind of straight line. But that would mean if you go out to 10 times as far from the center of the galaxy as we are, there must be 10 times as much mass out there as contained in everything we can see. And that means most of the mass of our galaxy is invisible. That was a remarkable discovery when it was first made in the 1970s. And unbelievable. In general, and you should remember this again, especially when you read about things in the New York Times, that all observations essentially are wrong. All experiments are wrong when they're first performed, and you should be skeptical. So when this was done, most people just thought it was something wrong. But in fact, since that time, every single galaxy we observe, every spiral galaxy we observe, when we measure the rotation curve, as it's called, out to the farthest distances we can measure, always remains flat instead of falling off as it should. And that tells us that at least 90% of the mass in the universe, the mass of matter in the universe, the mass of galaxies and objects, well, massive galaxies, let me put it that way, is invisible. It's what's become known as dark matter. We presently have no idea what it is, although we have, lot. well, I shouldn't say that. We have many ideas about what it might be, but we don't know for sure. But the most amazing aspect of that is that We're pretty certain that that stuff is not made of the same stuff that you and I are made of. It's not made of protons and neutrons and the stuff that makes up everything we see in this room. We think it's some new type of elementary particle that's very weakly interacting, like neutrinos, as Professor Hamilton worked on. That, in fact, is so weakly interacting that it can go right through this room without without noticing, and right through the Earth without noticing. So, in fact, if that's true, the dark matter isn't just out there. It's right in here in this room, going right through you as you doze off during this lecture. Okay? And that means, more interestingly, that we don't have to just use telescopes to find that stuff. We can actually do experiments in this room, or better still, underground. Deep underground, because deep underground, all the other cosmic rays that are bombarding us on a regular basis get stopped by the rock. But these weakly interacting particles, which are, are called WIMPs, w- named after the father of our present president, um, uh, uh, weakly interacting massive particles, actually, they would make it down there, and you could do experiments to detect it. And one of these experiments use, use this, which is the most important substance in nature. Well, some of the experiments use this. Just, I was going to turn the lights on, but you don't need to see it. Does anyone who, isn't, does anyone who doesn't know what this is know what this is? Um, LAUGHTER Okay, well, this, is, this is, it's silicon. It's the most important substance in nature because it's what computer chips are made of. And therefore, it's cheap. It's not just cheap, but it's pure. This silicon bull, which I got for free, given to me, the end of it, I make wafers from this, was given to me because it's so cheap, but it's, it's amazingly pure. The level of impurities in this are less than one part in about a million billion, almost. At least a million million. And they have to be incredibly pure to make computer chips that work. Okay? Macintosh things and things like that. Now, uh, that means, if you it turns out if you take incredibly pure silicon and you take it underground and you cool it to, say, a few one-thousandths of a degree above absolute zero, which sounds fantastical, but it's actually easily doable. You can cool things that low. And you leave it there. If one of these particles comes through, most of the particles go right through it and right through the Earth, but every now and then one will collide with the nucleus of one of the atoms of silicon, bounce off, and heat the whole silicon pool up by about one one one-thousandth of a degree, which is also easily measurable. And so, around the world right now, there are ongoing experiments with these kind of things underground looking for this dark matter. And one day, if they find it, you'll read about it, and we will learn about what, what, what type of elementary particle dominates the mass of the universe. Right now, we don't know. But we want to know about the universe on larger scales, and the reason we want to know about the universe on larger scales, and we want to know what dominates, is... Because we've always felt that when we determine how much mass there is, we will know the future. I'm putting all the pieces together that were almost there. In fact, the reason that I went into cosmology from particle physics over 20 years ago is because I realized we were living in the first generation in the history of humanity that might be able to answer the question empirically, how will the universe end? And that was so fascinating to me that that's why I got interested in dark matter early on. And the, the reason is, well, Einstein tells us that the, the geometry of the universe, because space can curve in the presence of matter, can be one of three types. We call open, closed, or flat. This is a two-dimensional universe. As our real universe isn't two-dimensional, but it's easier to picture in this case. And an open universe, these are the nice geometries, but the most important thing about an open universe is it full, an open universe full of matter will expand forever, and a closed universe full of matter will recollapse. And so if we can determine the total abundance of matter... We could determine the geometry of the universe, and we could therefore determine the future unambiguously. And the future depended upon determining the amount of dark matter. Okay? So we wanted to measure it on bigger and bigger scales. And the reason is quite simple. We can determine how the universe will end by doing first-year physics. If I throw a coin up in the air, it will come down. Oh, God. Okay. If I throw it up higher, it'll come down and I won't even see it, but I might be able to catch it. There we go. If I throw it up really fast, it won't come down at all. And we can get first year physics students to calculate how fast you have to throw something so it won't come down very simply. We say if I throw something up, it has energy. It has two types of energy, a positive piece and a negative piece. There's a, po- I think you can see this. The positive piece is due to velocity, so the faster the object is moving, the bigger the positive piece. The negative piece is due to gravity. And and we just, it turns out, actually I can use this, that if the total energy, the combination of this plus that, is greater than zero, the object will escape. And if it's less than zero, it'll return. And you see, as you make the the velocity bigger and bigger and bigger, the positive piece gets bigger and bigger and bigger, eventually overwhelms that, and the object escapes, and that's how we calculate the escape velocity from the Earth. We can do the same for our universe, you see. Because in our universe, we're here, we're looking at galaxies. Remember, this is the picture I showed you earlier. The galaxies are all moving away from us, on average. So let's pick a galaxy a certain distance away from us. Not the other end of the universe, but far enough away so there are lots of galaxies between us and it. And we can say, well, that galaxy escaped from us. And the calculation is exactly the first year physics calculation. We want to measure the positive piece of the energy, and that depends upon its velocity squared. But remember, the velocity depends upon the Hubble constant. That's why we want to know the Hubble constant, because that tells us the positive piece. The negative piece depends upon how much matter there is in between us and that object, and that's the mass density of the universe. And therefore, if we want to know this piece, we want to measure the density of the universe. That's why we want to know how much total mass there is. Then we compare the two pieces. And if this piece is bigger than that piece, or if B over A is bigger than one, the universe will collapse if it's full of matter. If b over a is less than 1, the universe will expand forever if it's full of matter. And that was the calculation. It's such an important calculation. When physicists get an important ratio like that, they always give it a Greek letter. And in this case, we call it omega. And the business of 20th century physics was to measure omega. Once we measure omega, we knew the future. That's why we did it. And we measured the Hubble constant. To measure the density, we've got the density of galaxies. But galaxies aren't all there are. In fact... Here's one of, of course, my favorite pictures from the Hubble Deep Field where every spot you see here essentially is a galaxy. Not a star, but a galaxy. There are over 400 billion galaxies in the observable universe, each containing hundreds of billions of stars. And galaxies like galaxies like to exist in clumps. And we can ask, can we weigh these clumps of galaxies? Not just individual galaxies, but clumps of galaxies. There are different ways of doing it. Because I'm running a little behind, I would just want to go to this way because it's pictorial and it's beautiful, and it depends upon Einstein, who we're talking about. Einstein realized that space is curved in the presence of matter, and therefore light bends in the presence of matter. And in 1937, I think, he predicted in a paper that if you had an object that was far behind another object that was very massive, that intervening object would act like what you could call a gravitational lens. It would bend the light around it, and so it would distort the original image, magnifying it, splitting it up into multiple images. He also said it would never be observable. The effect would be too small for people to ever see. But he, as many theorists do, underestimated observers. Okay? And we should never do that. And here, in fact, is a picture from, uh, of, in fact, exactly that phenomenon. You see this is a cluster of galaxies. Again, these objects are not stars. They're galaxies. And you see these blue objects that stand out. These blue objects are many multiple images of the same single galaxy located about four or five billion light years behind this cluster of galaxies, and its light is bent and produced a multiple image, this blue galaxy. And, of course, we understand general relativity, so we can work backwards. We can say, what's the distribution of mass that would produce that image? It allows us to weigh the cluster of galaxies. And here's the, here's the, the determination. Here's the spikes where the galaxies are. But what you can see is that there's lots of dark matter in between the galaxies, And now we can very accurately determine the total mass of these, which are the largest objects in the universe, clusters of galaxies, and anything that's attracted by gravity should fall into them. And when we do that, well, sorry, I guess I want, actually it's below your, your projector, can't show it. It's actually down here. But when we do that, we find that the mass of these objects is insufficient to make the universe closed. In fact, it's a factor of three too small to make the universe closed or flat, suggesting that the universe is open. We now know this unambiguously, with an accuracy of 5 or 10%, that there's not enough matter, including the dark matter, to make the universe flat. But we also realize this is not the right way to think about things. We should try, if we're interested in knowing whether the universe is flat, in measuring the geometry of the universe directly. So the question I ask you is, how would you measure that the Earth is curved if you couldn't travel around it and you couldn't go in an airplane above it or in a spacecraft above it and see that it was curved? Okay, use mathematics. Draw a triangle. And again, Princeton students would know that it's 180 degrees, right? If you add, or some Princeton students would. Um, If you add the, the sum of the angles of the triangle, it's 180 degrees, okay? Of course, that's only true if you have a triangle on a flat piece of paper. If you take, in fact, a curved surface, it's completely false. You can draw a triangle on a curved surface, like the surface of the Earth, where, in fact, the sum of the angles is 270 degrees. I would draw such a triangle, go around the equator, make a right angle and head up to the North Pole, make another right angle and come back to the equator. So I have three right angles, and that adds up to 270 degrees. And therefore, without ever having left the Earth's surface, you would know, and or having gone around it, you would know that you lived on a curved surface. So we try and do the same thing with the geometry of space itself. And it is amazing, to me at least, I would never have believed a decade ago that this measurement was possible, that we can actually measure the curvature of the universe directly by using the proper probe. And the proper probe comes from something which was essentially discovered at Princeton, the cosmic microwave background radiation, the leftover radiation from the Big Bang itself. When we look out in the universe... You might think, well, when we look out in the universe, we're doing cosmic archaeology. When we look out at galaxies that are billions of light years away, we're seeing them as they looked billions of years ago. So you might think if you look far enough back, you could see the Big Bang. You should, after all, be able to, if the universe is 15 billion years old, you should be able to look all the way back to the Big Bang. But you can't because between the Big Bang and us, there's a wall. Not a physical wall, but a metaphorical wall that's essentially the same. It's the same as the wall in this room, more or less. I can't see outside and my laser beam doesn't go outside because this wall is opaque. I can see all the way to the wall because the air is transparent between us and the wall. Well, when we look at the universe, as we go back in time, the universe was getting hotter and hotter and hotter in its early times, and if we get to a time when the universe was about 300,000 years old, the temperature of the universe was about 3,000 degrees Kelvin. At that temperature, the universe was so hot that hydrogen got ionized. Matter could no longer be neutral. The energy of radiation was so great that a hydrogen atom, a proton, would try and uh, uh, capture an electron and it would be broken apart by the radiation. Ionized matter is opaque to radiation. So if we try and look back, we can't see further back because the universe is opaque. But by the same token, when I look at this wall, what I'm seeing is light that's absorbed by the atoms of the surface of this wall and re-emitted to me. What I would look out and expect to see, therefore, is that light emitted from the atoms... On this surface, at all later times, the universe was neutral, and the atoms on that surface will emit radiation, which will be coming to me in all directions. If there was a Big Bang, I should see this background radiation, which, as the universe cools, will cool to be in the microwave band, and that was was predicted by a number of people, George Gamow and others, and was observed in New Jersey in 1965. The causing microwave background radiation, it's a remarkable discovery because it gives us a picture of the universe when it was 300,000 years old. But there's one particular aspect of that picture that's important for this talk. And that is, there's one scale we expect on this, on this picture that should stand out when you look at it. And that's this, this scale here, one degree or so. Why should that stand out? Well, you could ask, what is this distance spanned by one degree on that surface created 5, 13 billion years ago? And, and therefore 13 billion years away and all direct, light years away in all directions or so. Well, that distance is the distance light can travel in 300,000 years, which was the age of the universe at that time. That's an important distance because not, no information can travel faster than the speed of light. So if something happens here, there's no way anything here can know about it. And if there's some, And if there's a gravitational attraction here... Only matter can only respond to it within a certain region. Pressure can respond to gravity only within a region of this size. Anything larger and you wouldn't know it's there. If there was a lump that was bigger than this, you wouldn't know it was a lump. So you would expect all causal physical processes to take place within regions of this size and regions that are separated by that size, there could be no causal relationships. So you'd expect to see physical processes respond to gravity on that scale and not on this scale, and that should imprint that scale on the cosmic microwave background. So you look at that scale. And the interesting thing is that scale tells you the geometry of the universe. Because if I take a ruler that's 300,000 light years across and put it 15 billion light years away or so in all directions, I can calculate the angle span. And using the expansion of the universe, I calculated it's one degree or so. But that's in a flat universe. Because in a flat universe, light travels in straight lines. But in an open universe, light doesn't travel straight lines. In fact, it diverges as you go back in time. In a closed universe, it converges. So the angle you'd expect to see by the same physical distance would be smaller in an open universe and larger in a closed universe. So if you can measure that scale on the sky, measure the angle, you measure the geometry of the universe. And it's amazing that this can be done. This is not the universe, but the Earth. This is the surface of the Earth put on a a, a flat plane. What I want to show you is what that picture of that surface 15 billion light years away in all directions looks like. And here was the first picture of it from the Cosmic Background Explorer satellite 10 years ago. And now for the next, the talk will go on for five more minutes for those of you who are wondering. Uh, In the next five minutes we're going to see data that's only been taken in the last five to ten years. And it has revolutionized everything we know about the universe. Here's the picture of that surface in all directions taken with the Cosmic Background Explorer Satellite where where temperature is color. So differences in temperature are differences in color. And you see it it looks like a map of Canada. Okay? I say that because I grew up in Canada. And um, if you grew up in Canada, all your textbooks are American, and or were when I was growing up. And so geography textbooks would have, you know, North America, and there would be all these mountains and everything in the United States. You get to Canada, it was pink. Okay? And uniformly pink. So... But that's okay. So it's very uniform. But this cosmic background explorer satellite could look at temperature differences, not of degrees, but of millionths of a degree. So if you expand it, in fact, I'm going to skip this intermediate picture, but if you expand it down to this scale, where temperature differences of several millionths of a degree are observable, this is where the galaxy is. You can begin to see hot spots and cold spots. Now, what's the size of these things? The size is not one degree. It's more like 10 degrees. Well, that's not too surprising because the resolution of the Colby detector was such that you couldn't see scales smaller than 10 degrees. So it's not too surprising that everything here is 10 degrees or larger. If you want to see the picture we really want to see, you have to build a detector that will see 1 degree. And this is one of the first detectors that was built to look at this anisotropy, I, I, it's parochial in a sense because this is the, the, the what, experiment that was called the boomerang experiment, and the head of the boomerang experiment is now at my university, it's one, of, one of the Princeton graduates that we hired, in fact. Um, this was an experiment with a microwave radiometer attached in a balloon which went around the world, which is of course easy to do in Antarctica. You, uh, it, it's very easy in the South Pole, I could do that, but uh, uh, here you could, it took two weeks for this thing to go around it and it measured a single spot in the sky Looking at the microwave radiation and being able to probe angular scales that were smaller than degree, a degree, this is one of my favorite pictures, a compilation from that experiment, because here's the experiment, and here's the image it took. And this represents to me our cosmic myopia, right? We, we tend to think the sky is bright during the day and dark at night, but that's just because we see visible light. If we saw microwave radiation, day or night, if you weren't looking at the sun, it would look like this, and you'd be looking all the way back. To, to 15 billion light years away in all directions, and this is what you'd see if your eye was sensitive to temperature as color. And these are the lumps we're looking for, and the question is, what's their angular size? And so you, you do, this is a picture, here's another color representation of the boomerang data. Here is a universe that's generated, which is closed. I remind you, the light rays curve inward, so the angle spanned by that same physical distance should be bigger, so the lumps should be bigger. See, this is the predicted lumps, they're bigger than these lumps. Here's an open universe, and the lumps should be smaller. And if you very carefully look at this, they're smaller. But just like Goldilocks, if we live in a flat universe, it's just right. The size of the lumps is exactly right to match the size of the picture. The lumps in the picture, meaning we live in a flat universe. And you can, you can do, I don't know whether I've done it here. No, I haven't. That's just as well. But you can do analytical measurements of that. But in fact, this has been confirmed, not by, not by Colby, but by the successor to Colby, which is is being run by people here, and which, of course, is named after David Wilkinson, which has seen the entire sky, microwave background sky, with that kind of accuracy. And it has confirmed, in fact, that the peak occurs right around one degree, where most of the power is here, telling us with great certainty that the universe is flat. We now know, to great accuracy, that the universe is very, very, very close to being flat. We've measured the geometry of the universe directly. Now, if you're paying attention, you remember that we five years ago or three years ago determined very, very accurately that there isn't enough matter in the universe by a factor of three to make the universe flat. We knew that. But we now know the universe is flat. What gives? Well, there has to be something else out there. What could there be that would escape detection? Well, if you put energy in empty space... So it was uniformly spread out throughout the entire universe, you wouldn't measure it in these gravitational uh, gravitational lensing experiments. If you put energy in empty space, you could somehow get enough energy to make the universe flat and still account for only 30% in matter. Now that's insane. As I told you, the universe can't have, the empty space can't have energy. But you could say, well, if there was that much energy, what would it do? Well, it would produce this force. Remember? And this force would cause the expansion of the universe not to decelerate, as all sensible theories predicted, but to accelerate, because it's a repulsive force in nature. So the acceleration, the universe expansion should accelerate, it should get faster with time. And in 1998, people were able to measure that, using these, and this is the reason I talked about these supernovae, these standard candles, because we can measure these supernovae explosions right out to all distances comparable to the size of the visible universe. We can measure the velocity of those supernovae in the galaxies as a function of their distance and therefore as a function of the age of the universe. And we can measure the expansion rate of the universe. And in 1998, observers in several groups produced to their amazement the following graph. And the graph is this, velocity versus distance, basically. Velocity versus distance. And if I take a straight line and draw that through this data set, I can turn the whole thing horizontally. And what everyone expected to see was something like this curve here. Because if the universe is decelerating, these supernovae out here should fall down here. But instead what these observers discovered is that the supernovae tend to fall above the straight line. That's only possible if, a, on, under one of two conditions. The observation is wrong, okay, or the universe is accelerating, not decelerating. This was done completely independently of the discovery that the universe was flat. And what's amazing is if you try and fit the data, And you ask, how much energy would you need to put into empty space to fit this data? You find out you need exactly 70% of the energy needed to make the universe flat. So everything fits together. Everything fits together if we live in a flat universe dominated not by matter, but by the energy of empty space. Now, the fact that everything fits together should make you worry. Because there's a theorem in cosmology that no theory should agree with all the data because some of the data is wrong But in fact, it's getting better and better and better And as far as we can tell we are living in the craziest universe you can imagine Because it's dominated by the energy of empty space and we don't have the slightest idea why The dominant energy universe is somehow in nothing We have no idea. There's no theoretical explanation of this at all. And no one even has the slightest beginning of a theoretical explanation if they claim they do, they're lying. What is particularly interesting to many of us is that somehow, if we think, if we understand this energy in empty space, we'll somehow understand the very origin of our universe. And perhaps more importantly for those of us who worry about the future, it's not the matter in the universe that will determine its future. It's the energy in empty space. And in fact, it's changed everything. The reason I went into cosmology is no longer. I told you that if we determine the total, the geometry of the universe, we'd know its future. That's wrong. That was a lie. It turns out, once you allow empty space to have energy, all the rules go out the window, and a closed universe can expand forever, an open universe can collapse, and in fact, we will never know the future. Except we know one aspect of the future. Um it turns out, this is a quote from a private girl's school commencement address, which I've always wanted to use, where the speaker got up and said, things are going to get unimaginably worse, and they're never, ever going to get better again. <laughs> and it turns out that if we live in a universe dominated by the energy of empty space, it's the worst of all possible universes to live in for the future of life. Life will must end in such a universe on a shorter time frame that will end in any other universe. Again, so much for intelligent design. So, that may depress you, but I don't want to depress you with the fact that we're insignificant, that if you took away people and planets and stars and galaxies and everything we see in the universe, the universe would be largely the same. And I don't want to depress you with the fact that we are here just for a brief cosmic instance and all of our culture and our tragedies will long soon be forgotten. Okay? Rather, I want to leave you with the fact that We are living in remarkable times. It is amazing to me, not just that that the universe is accelerating, but rather that we live in times where stuck to this planet in the middle of nowhere, we can actually determine that fact. And so rather than being depressed, we should make the most of our brief moment in the sun. Thank you very much. Do we have time for a few questions? Yes. Thank, okay. Thank you very much for that oh, excellent well, talk, President Krause. And there, there's time for a few questions. I will not trap you, um, although I am going to do, produce some incendiaries here in a moment. But, no, I, um, I, will, not tra- I will just take maybe uh, uh, two or three questions in public, and I'll be happy to answer questions private. I'll also be happy. I understand there are books out there. I'll be happy to sign those for those who want. But, but just a few questions in public, uh, um, and, then, and then I'll let you go if there are any Especially if they're young people, we may get some questions. Any anyone brave enough to ask a question? Way in the back. In the back. Yes. Um, if the vacuum energy is making the galaxies accelerate apart. Yeah. How, how can, like you said at the end, that you could have an open universe that will collapse? Ah. How could that happen? That's a that's a very good question. I'll, I'll try and answer. I'll give you a quick answer now. I'll be happy to give you more details later. But it turns out that. <laughs> We're not sure what, that what we're measuring is really the vacuum energy. It could be something that mimics the vacuum energy, but behaves, but ultimately will be, we'll, we'll behave very differently from it. We, there's there's tr- people actually doing experiments to try and see if it's different than if it behaves differently than vacuum energy. I suspect we won't be able to determine that for at least the near future. And that means if it isn't the vacuum energy, it might be something else, and that something else might disappear. And then you might say, okay, well then an open universe will expand forever, and a closed universe will collapse. But since we don't know anything about the energy of empty space, we don't even know what sign it should have. And maybe the ultimate energy of empty space has a negative sign. If it has a negative sign, then an open universe will collapse, ultimately. Okay, so since we don't know what we're measuring is the energy of empty space, we don't know what the ultimate energy of empty space is. The point is, just by experiment, we cannot determine that. We really need a theory of what is the vacuum energy. In fact, not just a theory of that, but a theory of everything. Because in order to know the ultimate future of the universe, we essentially have to know the makeup of every possible constituent in the universe, including those we have never measured to date. And only when we had such a theory would we be able to ultimately know the future. And I'm I'm an old-fashioned guy. I kind of believe that physics is experimental science and that ultimately experiment guides our knowledge. And so experimentally, we'll never be able to ultimately determine the future. And a a closed universe can clearly expand forever if, if that really is the vacuum energy. And it turns out, if you think about all the different possibilities, anything's possible. Yeah? Well, we know for sure that Einstein's equations are wrong, because if you think the singularity of the Big Bang, the singularity is just wrong. Well, we know... We know. No, 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 here's what we know. What? Oh, Just hold on. Here's what we know. <laughs> now, you've made a good point, and it represents something that I think most people don't... It's probably one of the other biggest misconceptions about science. And that is... That what what it, that is it, what makes a theory right. Okay, theories, Einstein's theory of relativity is exactly right for the phenomena it was meant to describe. It describes with great accuracy the motion of planets around the sun and the dynamics of of of, of galaxies and can be tested very accurately. Okay, it clearly we know it clearly must break down on very small scales in the earliest moments of the history of the universe. We know that. Okay? But what We know at least, well, what we do know, we don't, we're not sure that's right down. I should even be a little more conservative. We know that the, the naive predictions of general relativity, when you combine them with quantum mechanics, predict nonsense. So therefore, something, either we're making the wrong predictions or something else has to take over. But that, whatever it is, that's at the earliest moments of the history of the universe. Okay? It shouldn't be relevant to understanding the dynamics of general relativity today. And unless general relativity breaks down at the largest scales then this is the universe we live in now some theorists are saying well maybe general relativity breaks down at the largest scales and there isn't really a cosmological constant it's just that gravity behaves differently there isn't dark matter just that gravity behaves differently the problem with that is at least for dark matter is that there's no good theory that would say why gravity would suddenly change in nature on the scale of galaxies moreover that doesn't explain the observations it would have to change in different ways on different scales other theorists have predicted that on the very largest scales, the scales comparable to the size of our universe, maybe general relativity has to be supplemented by other things. And maybe that's the answer. We just don't know. Well, I was going to say that Rosen came out with a theory where he modified Einstein's equation slightly to avoid the singularity, and otherwise the predictions are the same. But I'm very surprising that nobody mentions that, Rosen's theory. Do you have any comments <laughs> about that? No. <laughs> My mother taught me not to. Um, uh, not, 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 I'll be happy to talk to you about it after. But the bottom line is, it wouldn't, if, if, if well, okay, no. <laughs> any, any, any last question? One last, yes. What is it about silicon that makes it uniquely able to attach to Well, well that, that, that's really a good question. Not really. It's not unique to silicon, but it's a property of pure silicon. That um, when it's really pure, that if you put a little bit of energy in it, it'll produce a large temperature change. There's something called the specific heat of of objects of crystals like silicon. Germanium would work too. And if you put a very small bit of energy, if the thing is very, very cold, the the, crystal lattice is such that a very small energy deposit will produce a noticeable temperature change in a macroscopic amount of material. And if a WIMP did scatter in silicon, I mean, it scatters in everything. It scatters in you and I, but it would produce a noticeable temperature change in silicon or germanium or something like that with a crystal structure which, with very few impurities. And so it's that. Because you can only measure temperature changes of one 1,000th one of a degree. And you need a lot of material. And so you'd be able to have a lot of material whose temperature changes by a macroscopic amount. You need something with a, with a specific heat, which is, in fact, very, very small. Okay? That's a very good question. And maybe the best way to end the lecture is with a good question. So thank you very much. So let's.
0: So uh, thank you once again for coming and uh, safe trip home.